Policies of Exclusion, Poverty, and Health, Stories from the Front, compiled with introduction and reports by Crystal Ocean. Copyright 2005, Wise Group. Episode 8 Stories Glenna Method Interview the toughest thing about living in poverty is constantly being on the edge. I am never relaxed or complacent, because I must always be thinking ahead. What makes the situation worse is having to deal with the bureaucracy. It is demoralizing and soul-destroying. My dad was a charismatic Christian who walked the talk. During World War II, he enlisted as a conscientious objector, working with the Red Cross on the front lines in Europe. While stationed in England, he met my mother, who was 14. Dad was 26. They married, returned to B.C., and started a family. I was the middle child of five. Dad wanted to work in the prison system, but was told he was too old, so he worked as a janitor. He was an artist and ran a rock club. Among the things he designed was the tiara for a major beauty pageant. My mom worked as a house cleaner. I was fortunate with the family I had. The equality was always there. There was no, the boys do the garbage and the girls do the kitchen. I was not a tomboy. I didn't like being called that. So what if I played in trees and I got my clothes dirty? I was a girl. I was also a cheeky little thing. I was not my mother's favorite child. I wouldn't conform, I guess. Mostly quiet, when I did speak up, I would speak the truth, and that would upset people. I didn't conform at school, either. I wouldn't wear my hair in the backcomb beehives they were wearing, or wear miniskirts. I wouldn't do the nail polish and high heels. We were also poor. Clothes used to come into the house in plastic bags. We'd get what we needed and pass the bags on to the next neighbor who needed them. My parents made it okay to be poor. While we were the poorest on the block, our lifestyle was livable. Dad grew a garden on half an acre and fed the five kids over the winter. The only thing we bought in winter was meat, and we traded stuff like eggs and cheese. I'd selected the academic stream in high school, which set me on track to go to university. In grade 10, I was having trouble with math and asked the teacher for some help. How she responded changed the direction of my life. If you can't do this, she said, you might as well get out right now. I had to take a commercial math course instead. The commercial stream led to vocational training. It meant earning a living by being a secretary or a nurse or by doing a job versus having a career. Going to university had been an option. I'd wanted that option. I was quite a loner in school, but not lonely. I would sit quietly until I couldn't stand what was going on any more. In grade 11, for example, one of the English teachers was teaching all this heavy stuff. Everything was negative. All the poems were dark. I asked her, What are we doing here? Are we doing English, or are we going to be depressed? 
We had a grade twelve teacher who used to stand on his desk and tell us how stupid we were. You guys are a bunch of lame brain, blah, 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 blah. I sat there and sat there. Finally, one day, I got up and stood on the desk like he did and said, You guys are just terrible students. You're going to listen to this guy dump on you? I turned around and told him what I thought of him. I didn't know anyone in that class, but after I left the room and went to the washroom, every one of the kids trickled out of the class, too. In that way, there was some support for what I was doing. But I didn't make friends. I ended up with one girlfriend in high school, and I still know her today. In my seventeenth year, my dad became ill with lymphatic cancer. That year, I was to graduate. I'd been getting excellent marks and couldn't see myself writing tests. I went to the principal, who knew my dad and knew the family. He said, we can't make any exceptions. I went to each teacher. All except my English teacher refused to answer me. That was the end of school. By then I was fed up with it. School was like jail. Nine months after Dad got cancer, he was dead. The family dispersed. When I left home and set out into the world at seventeen, I believed I could do whatever I wanted. I believed that I'd get paid for the work that I did. I believed that I'd be recognized for my abilities. It didn't matter the body I was in, and it didn't matter the clothes I was wearing. By seventeen, I was going to night school and was a manager of a specialty shop, supervising a staff of ten. I was so proud to get this job. I'm bringing money home now, Mom. But my mother wanted me out of the house. One of the requirements at the shop was to wear a miniskirt. A guy working at the same location used to come around and flash dirty pictures. I reported him, and he got fired. He followed me home on the bus one night and forced his way into my apartment. He raped me. I got pregnant. I gave the baby up for adoption. My boyfriend raped me. I got pregnant. He found a nurse. She came to my apartment and shot soap bubbles into my uterus. I lay there for two days, bleeding. The blood soaked two mattresses. To this day, I can't sleep in a bed. I was about eighteen and had been writing to a pen pal. My brother in the Navy had connected us. He came to B.C. and we sort of hit it off. Because I'd been a naughty girl, my mother said, do something right in your life and get married. I did. We moved twenty-three times in eight years. My husband was super intelligent but he was also arrogant, a biker, and couldn't keep a job. I was supporting us, always with little menial jobs. His dad offered us a house in Ontario if we paid the small mortgage. We didn't get the house because my husband kept getting fired. He knew more than everybody, 
would show up in his leathers at work, or wouldn't conform in other ways. Each time he got fired or got laid off or quit, most of the time he quit, we'd move to where he could get work. I would pick up whatever was around to keep us going. I applied for a job as manager of a candy store. The interviewer said he would never hire me. He'd just wanted to see what kind of woman thinks she can manage a candy store. I was hired at a newspaper. I asked for a raise because I'd taken on more than the job description. I was told there was no money for women like you. My next job was as an accounts payable clerk. Again, I ended up taking on many more roles and found discrimination alive and well in small and petty ways. The men had chairs with armrests. The women did not. For my next employer, I was hired to assist the paymaster and his two staff. They all quit, and I was left the sole worker. The men upstairs, following company tradition, asked that I serve them coffee at the break. I refused and was fired. I sued the company and won. They had to apologize, reinstate me, and rewrite the coffee-making procedures. When the job became available again, they did not offer it to me. I sued again. I won again. It was the first successful case of that kind in Canada. My little sister came to live with us. My husband decided to go to university. I was working in a factory to support us all. I found out later that he was not attending university. He was just taking the car to hang out there. Meanwhile, my sister and I were hitchhiking into town so I could go to work and she could go to school. I quit my job and told him, It's your turn. I put myself through two years of college, aced the program, mental retardation counselor, and got offered jobs all over the place. While attending school, I managed two pizza shops, coordinated a senior citizens center, and was night school secretary for the local outreach program. I'd also had a baby. After graduation, I became interim director for an association for the mentally challenged. I had to go with a male board member to make a presentation to the local city council because women weren't allowed. My husband went for air traffic control training. Of course, I was supporting him through that, too. I became pregnant again. He got fired. Then we went on welfare. Since I'd just had my second baby, I couldn't work. He'd take off in the car, supposedly looking for work. I'd bicycle, with the little guy in the back, the baby in a pouch in the front, about four miles to the daycare, because I needed a break. Then I'd come back home, put the youngest one to bed, and sit on the end of the bed until it was time to go and pick up the two-year-old. I wanted out. Not long after, a minister advised us to separate. I had three-month-old baby and a two-year-old toddler. 
I was working again as a cashier in a grocery store, and I was pursuing my profession. The landlords would not rent to a woman alone with two children. I had to take my brother-in-law with me house-hunting. I lied and told one landlord that my husband had died, that I'd received a large insurance package, and that my brother-in-law would help me with the manly chores. I got the house. Living in Ontario had exhausted me. A volunteer position came up on Vancouver Island. It involved living in a closed community with persons with multiple handicaps. I sold everything threw what I had left into a car, rented a six-foot trailer, and dragged my stuff across the country. It took eight days with my baby to nurse along the way. It was exhausting. I stopped in to see my mom. She was glad I wouldn't be living close by. She didn't like my biggest boy. The little one was too little to dislike. By the time my boys were three and six, I'd moved into a small house in the nearest village and began to recover from mental exhaustion and pelvic cancer. I let my kids be who they were, didn't squash them or say, you have to conform. Thank God. I went on welfare for eleven months. My worker said, I can see this isn't going to be long for you. I took up a teaching position at the Satellite College, which launched me into a career that lasted eight years. At the same time, I operated a small business from my home, sent my children to school, developed a network of supportive friends, and bought the little house where I live today. Again, I ran into trouble with the boys trying to get a mortgage. Once approved, I paid off the mortgage in six years. I ran my small business full-time for a while. Eventually, competition arrived, and I sold it to a friendly couple who retained my services for one year. I next secured a seasonal part-time position at a local greenhouse, which I've held for eleven years. During that time, my sons prepared to leave home, and I became involved with a lovely man. I asked him to move in with me. Then I began to feel depressed again. One winter, again exhausted, I took a basic construction course. I spent six months with my brother in B.C.'s interior, where we built a house off the grid. It is entirely self-contained. I returned to the island refreshed and confident that my life's experiences would be used to assist others living on the edge. Being on the edge is saying no a lot. No, you can't have that. No, you can't go. No, you can't buy those shoes. The second-hand pair will have to do. No, you can't have a party. No, you can't go camping. It's a lot of planning ahead and knowing exactly where your money's going to go. Then with teenagers, it's how much they eat, the clothes they go through toys, no bicycles because no helmets, extracurricular things, $20 here, $20 there. You have to have this, you have to have that. All went by the sidelines. Always they were in second-hand clothes. 
My kids didn't care, because I didn't. I am tired. I have been working since I was 14. When I retire at 65, I'm going to have this little tiny government handout. It won't matter how resourceful I've been. There's no financial reward for that. I should have been contributing to Canada Pension while I was working at all those part-time jobs or while I was self-employed. But with two kids to feed, I couldn't afford to think about my future. I am one of the working poor. The reward for that is more poorness. It's, sorry lady, you did a really good job. You raised those kids. You were only on welfare for eleven months. Good for you. Good for you. Here are your pennies. I could sell my house, but then I'd be out there. What is the point of that, and where's the reward? I am now in private practice as a support counselor for persons living with multiple disabilities, their caregivers, and their families. I also have a permanent part-time position to cover the times that I don't have counseling contracts. So again, all these little things. I live a life of voluntary simplicity, have few clothes, very little furniture, no TV or computer, and was car-free for ten years. I am involved with three diverse organizations in my community. I'm proud of what I've done. My sons are good men. They are nonconformists. They speak up, too. I'm proud of where I've come from. I had many, many, many self-doubts, especially around raising my kids on my own and standing up to what other people thought I should be doing with them. The fight takes a lot. I'm exhausted. I'm just exhausted. All my life I've been an artist, right from a tiny little person. That's what I want to do. I encourage other women to do their own thing, to speak their own mind, and to stand up against the boy stuff.